Hello, wrestling fans. This is Al Getz welcoming you to another episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. Alongside me, as always, is my fearless co-host, Mr. John Boucher. John, happy February. Happy February. I cannot believe it is February already. It's it, January just seemed to zip on by. I don't know. It took for it. It seemed like a long January for me, but I, <laughs> so I, I guess you're being sarcastic. So I think there's a, a, a few news items uh, re- related to wrestling sort of hit uh, hit the airwaves in January. Um, uh, yeah. Now, of course, uh, our podcast we focus on a uh, another time, an earlier time. This month we're looking at St. Louis in 1971, and of course, St. Louis functioned quite differently than the territories we usually cover on this site. So we'll take a look at how they operated. We'll also run down the roster and we'll shine a spotlight on two wrestlers in particular, one a doctor and one a daddy. Well, although was Bill, did Bill Miller have kids? Yes. So then he was, well, so he was a doctor and a daddy. And then the other one was just a daddy who is also a father, (laughs) but not a doctor. Not that I know of, no. Yes, we'll we'll also be posting supporting materials of uh, a lot of the things we talk about on X. We'll use the hashtag CTTFEB24 to note these. So that's hashtag CTT, short for charting the territories, FEB for February, and 24 for 2024. So be sure to follow me at Al Gets Wrestling and John at JON underscore BOU. C-H-E-R, to see our post. So, uh, John, you're the same age as me, so you had a landline. You had a landline phone. You mm-hmm. never you never called the number sign a hashtag back then, did you? Oh, it was the pound. Pound yeah. sign, right? Yeah, it was pound. Yeah. I, don't know where this, yeah, I don't know where this hashtag thing came from, but uh, yeah. all of a sudden. But uh, also, before we begin, last month we sort of inserted a breaking news segment at the top of the podcast. We actually recorded it. After the episode had been finished, because they had just announced um, that I was going to be uh, receiving the Jim Melby Award this year at the Tragos Thez Hall of Fame induction weekend. I I just wanted to thank everybody who reached out to me, uh, both publicly and privately, since that was announced. I've actually heard from a few previous winners of the award welcoming me to the club. I actually heard um, uh, Greg and Stephen, Greg Oliver and Stephen Johnson, and uh, actually last night... Mark James sent me a nice little message on Facebook, and he's someone oh. actually, and he's someone that I don't communicate with. Uh, whereas uh, I've Greg and I communicate regularly, so it was really cool to have Mark uh, offer me a little congratulations. So, you know, when you look at the list of award winners, uh, of course, <laughs> the first one was Jim Melby. It's named after uh, Jim Melby, but uh, Greg Oliver and Stephen Johnson, Mike Mooneyham, J. Michael Kenyon, Scott Teal, Bill Apter. George Napolitano, Larry Matisic, Wade Keller, Dave Meltzer, Koji Miyamoto, Mark James, Dick Bourne. Last year's recipient was Tom Burke. That's like, ooh, that's I like I yeah, wow, that's a yeah. that's a heck of a uh, group to join. And of course, the mm-hmm. Hall of Fame weekend, they still are haven't announced all the other recipients, but they've already announced Arn Anderson and Tony Schiavone. Wow. So 1986 <laughs> me or 1987 yeah. <laughs> me is uh, doing jumping jacks right now because uh, uh, I will be receiving an award uh, the, the same time as Shivani and Double A. Wow. Uh, the induction uh, will be the weekend of July 18th through July 20th in Waterloo, Iowa. And of course, uh, most of our listeners probably know Waterloo is a pretty, pretty important place 
in wrestling history, as it's where the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, was literally founded uh, at a hotel in Waterloo. I've really enjoyed the weekend the two times I've been previously. So uh, for our listeners, if you're thinking about going and on the fence, I strongly recommend it and I'll be giving a speech. So if that, you know, doesn't put you over over the edge, I don't know what will. I'll be there probably too. So you can see me. So that's, that's awesome. I, yeah. Added incentive, so. Last year I said, yeah, after I, after I went, I told John, they told me to bring a friend and you're the only one I've got. So <laughs> you kind of have go. to go. Let's go, let's go, let's do it. Um, and, you know, of course, on this podcast, we typically talk about uh, wrestling in, in, in the 1970s. Uh, but as we alluded to earlier, there was some news uh, in the wrestling world the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, at the very least, we, we should briefly address it before we move on to a happier time. Um, you know, the lawsuit, the, the allegations uh, against Vince McMahon, uh, as well as the corporate culture of the WWE as a whole. Yeah. This is, I, you know, none of, none of it is, is shocking to me. Like, none of it was completely unexpected, but to actually see it in, you know, print or in writing or hear about it being written down, it's mm-hmm. quite jarring. And, and um, I think... A lot of our listeners know I I don't watch near as much wrestling as I used to, and in particular I I do not watch the WWE and have it for many years, and part of the reason is just that that whole culture and the numerous uh, other instances over the years involving McMahon that have always been alluded to but never really concrete. But where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, wrestling is uh, as often been a dirty business that attracts a certain element and um you know sometimes it's hard justifying being a wrestling historian um you know <laughs> on this podcast especially the first couple of years of the podcast john we covered leroy mcgurk's territory um oh and we managed to avoid saying the words grizzly smith and bob sweet tan as often as we could <laughs> but they they come up so um yeah. you know so that's that's sort of my take on it john yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is, this is, and it's constantly, it seems like every day, by the time this show goes live, there might even be more stuff that we find out, you know, it's like, and that's, that's a scary thing. It seems like every, every day there's more and more, there's, oh, there's more people who want to, you know, so it's just, it's just like a, a, a snowball effect of just awfulness. <laughs> the more you, so, the more yeah. you read and the more you hear. So yeah, that's that's really all I have to say about that. Uh, we yeah. I've I've been a wrestling fan for you know decades. Love love wrestling, but I also understand the the people you see on screen or at the events aren't necessarily your friends. Of course, in my case, since I was in in wrestling for a while, I know for a fact most of them ain't my friends, <laughs> and would stab me in the, and would stab me in the back for uh, half my hot dog and a handshake. So <laughs> not but, me. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, again, uh, they say never meet your idols, never meet your heroes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Our podcast, of course, we're going to talk about St. Louis and we're going to have all our regular features, including this month. I learned John plays Gordon Soli's championship wrestling trivia. And as always, we kick things off with stuff John bought me off eBay. Now, normally before the podcast comes out, I post a photo of the item or items so that uh, our listeners can sort of see what it is and, and you know, get excited about it. Um, something interesting happened this month. I opened the package and I looked at it and I don't know what it is. 
Now, the only time that's happened before was when he sent me a piece of the ring rope from the cow palace, but there was a card with it explaining what it was. And this one, uh, what I decided to do now, I'm sure if I pulled it out and examined it closely, I, I would have figured it out. But I yeah. said, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this. We're not going to have any advance notice. Our listeners won't know what it is either. John, you tell everybody, what the heck did you buy me? So this month I bought you a, a tally counter from That's, the okay. Keel Auditorium in St. Louis. That's what I figured it was. I'd yep. seen just enough of it to see that it had some sort of little counter. So it's a, um, I and it looks like it's a hand. It could be a handheld thing, but it also has screws to be mounted onto a table or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like either like mounted to a base or like a turnstile or what have you for the yeah. attendance to keep track of the you know. And if so, everything yeah. we've heard about Muchnick is uh, true, those numbers are probably some of the more accurately reported ones in the country. Absolutely, he's always <laughs> he's always always been uh, had the rep of uh, taking very careful attendance, not fudging the numbers, and yeah. uh, paying. Uh, the talent, a strict percentage to the point that wrestlers would say sometimes there was change in addition to the bills. There was change <laughs> in the envelopes because their percentage came out to, you know, $317 and 49 cents. And Dagnabbit, he wouldn't round up to 50, <laughs> wouldn't round down to 45. He gave him 49 cents. <laughs> so yeah, this, I thought this was a pretty cool piece of St. Louis wrestling history. Though, yeah. Right? So it's got, so it's a little metal thing and it's got, uh, I guess, a, a lever that you can click and then a knob that probably rewinds it. Um, and I don't know when this was last operational, but the count on the display right now is 65. Oh, so that might've been in the Madison era <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, they didn't do as well as, uh, as when yeah. Sam was promoting, but yeah, so, so now I have actual artifacts from the cow palace and from Keel auditorium, two of the more famous wrestling venues. Yeah. out there so uh you keep buying me enough stuff i'm gonna be able to build my own office slash wrestling building I, I couldn't find any turnbuckles for sale from st louis and you, you get killed on the shipping on the ring post so you know <laughs> yeah i i would think those costs a pretty penny to ship so we'll have to do this uh, you just have to do it in small pieces yes 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 so, yeah, so that's pretty cool. A piece of history from the Keel Auditorium. Now, when Sam was running St. Louis in the early 70s, the house shows were usually at Keel Auditorium, although a few times a year he'd run a slightly larger venue, the arena. Um, of course, the TV tapings were originally held at the uh, at the ballroom inside the Chase Hotel. I believe it's called the Coruscant. Mm. ballroom but in 1971 is the year that they moved it from the ballroom to the kplr tv studios which conveniently enough were also located in that same hotel oh so and i think literally there was a, just one wall dividing them huh. um, but as far as what we think of wrestling at the chase with uh you know the chandeliers and everybody all dressed to the nines 71 is the year where that uh went away and uh huh. they did their tv in the studio Interesting. just one of the many things we learn as as we do uh as we do research and of course uh, a lot of my research has uh been published in the form of books you can order charting the territories books worldwide via amazon.com or to order an autographed copy from within the continental united states you can go to charting and I uh, sort of let the cat out of the bag on X uh, last month. My next book will cover Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling from 1971 to 1973. So continuing the trend of 
uh, some of the lesser appreciated and lesser discussed territories from Leroy McGurk's in the, the 70s to Heart of America and now to Gulf Coast. Uh, the book will almost certainly be released in the spring, but I don't have a uh, a better target, a more, you know, more finite uh, date than that at this point. Very excited about this book. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting one, and and um, I think every book I've written, uh, the the next one always has one or two new uh, twists or features, and that's going to be the same here. We're actually going to have uh, some profiles on some of the wrestlers, uh, and, uh, not just the very brief bio and and charts and stats, but for some of the key heels in the territory in the early seventies, we're going to uh, discuss at length their. Uh, journeys through gulf coast in the early 1970s oh, cool 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 uh of course that site charting the where you can order the books is also where you can go look at a year in the life which is a comprehensive data-driven look at sam mushnick's st louis wrestling club in 1971 we'll discuss a lot of what's contained uh on a year in the life on this podcast but uh i you know, encourage everybody to go to the site. There's a lot more info than we're going to be able to get to, uh, as well as some fancy color-coded charts that I spend way too much time putting together. <laughs> so please look at them to make it worth the, the time it takes. Uh, and uh, starting last month, we now have these uh, able to be downloaded as a PDF directly from our website. So not just the one for St. Louis, but there's actually an archive of the 13 others uh, that we've done. Uh, we began doing this a year in the life uh, last January. So we now have 14 of these things, including St. Louis. So mm-hmm. John, you know, St. Louis is one of those um, we're called charting the territories. Is it a territory? Is it not a territory? I guess it depends on how you define that. So uh, John, how would you define the term wrestling territory? Yeah, usually I would define a territory as having its own roster of talent, its own TV, its own angles, its own house show loop. And that's, that's how the majority of them function right. most of the time. And they're, you know, St. Louis of course is, is an exception. Well, here. yes, it, um, it did have its own TV. It yeah. did have its own angles. Uh, and yeah. much as a lot of people think, it was more like a greatest hits type promotion where they take angles from Texas and bring them in. Um, mm. Certainly in the 1970s, that wasn't the case. Sam booked it uh, as its own self-contained entity. As a matter of fact, when we run down the roster, there's a, a, a few wrestlers that he has on a different side, a babyface or heel, than those wrestlers are in their home territory. Huh. Um, he did have his own TV. And, you know, when the term territory in theory means, you know, uh, it's a geographic term meant to, you know, mm, uh, yeah. a, you know, a piece of land. And in that aspect, St. Louis was a territory because he had, you know, he, he ran the St. Louis television market, which is St. Louis and the surrounding areas. And no one else did. And I don't think heart of America's TV or even the AWA's TV aired in St. Louis. So, by that definition, it is a territory, but I think of a territory similar to you. You talked about a roster of wrestlers. Uh, the term they used in the day was a booking office. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and that's also how we were able to uh, take East Texas and consider it as one territory. Because even though Paul Bosch 
yeah. kind of had his own thing going in Houston. He was booking his wrestlers mostly from Fritz's booking office. Yeah. So, it's interesting too, looking at Much, uh, Sam Mushnick and Paul Bosch, both like able to, you know, f- f- being well respected, well liked, and having that stroke within, you know, the business to be able to sort of act as like magnet territories when needed. You right. Know? Yeah. yeah. Um, someone had asked me on X because um, prior to uh, the the mid sixties or so, Sam actually had a much larger territory he he had i believe he had evansville and louisville uh they then went to dick the bruiser who then didn't run the towns which then went uh then jerry jarrett said hey no one's running these i'll i'll start running them um i would imagine his scaling things down came with him uh being named the president of the nwa yeah yeah because um, yeah. someone had asked me on x was did sam truly make enough money just from that the the st louis house shows to not need other, you know, other towns. And I would figure his duties as president of the NWA and of course the booking fee that uh, would be received for booking the champion is probably what kept Sam uh, happy financially. Um, So, you know, and, and uh, he also, you know, he just had a ton of respect in the local community and, and might've done well enough when he had the other towns that he, you know, could, could uh, if he invested that money, well, he could just, you know, count on the uh, box office from St. Louis every two yeah. to four weeks, minus the 32% that he paid the wrestlers. Um, so they they ran house shows in St. Louis generally on Friday nights, and it was every two to four weeks on average. It's not a set every other week or every third week or what have you. It varies a little bit over the course of each year. And they, like many other uh, areas around Missouri and that sort of uh, Midwest portion of the U.S. They took summers off. Uh, Sam took about two months off in the summer. Um, they ran St. Louis proper for house shows 17 times in 1971. And we actually have records for eight spot shows um, during the year, all of which were in smaller towns in Missouri or Illinois that were in the St. Louis TV market. Hmm. Of those eight shows, seven of them were run the night before or after a St. Louis house show. Because where it gets weird is since they didn't run um, Keel or the arena on a set schedule, that, um, that means the TVs weren't always taped the same weekend as a St. Louis house show. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know for a fact how often they did the taping. I know later in the seventies, they switched to taping three episodes at once. I know in the late fifties or early sixties, they taped it, uh, every week. I believe they taped it every other week here. And, And how I know this is while we don't have dates of the tapings, we do have results of the TV shows each week as they aired. And those are on cagematch.net. And when you look at the preliminary wrestlers that they use, by and large, uh, if a preliminary wrestler shows up that isn't a regular in the territory, he works on two TV episodes in a row. Yeah. So, yeah. So, to me, that is very strong evidence that they're taping every other week. But again, they're not running keel every other week like clockwork. So that means there are some weeks where they're just bringing in guys for TV. And hmm. 
even when they're not doing that, if they are running Keel on Friday and a, and then TV on Sunday, a lot of the guys actually fly back to their home territory and work a show Saturday night and then fly back out early Sunday morning to do the TV. Mm. So aside from, and aside from paying well, Sam always paid trans separately. So he is oh. either flying guys in or paying their gas on top of their uh, strict 32% of, of the uh, gate going yeah. to the talent. Um, and one of the interesting things is, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we think about it as a greatest hits promotion where he's getting the best wrestlers from everywhere. At the top of the cards, that is the case. But once you get to sort of to the middle section and then the lower section, the bulk of guys that he's using are in a neighboring territory in, in some direction. Of course, we know um, a lot of times he'd use guys from Heart of America uh, to work the undercards. But even some of the guys like Bill Miller, uh, Dick the Bruiser, um, hmm. uh, Angelo Poffo, the Fargos, he's bringing them in when they're working for the Sheik in Detroit or Dick the Bruiser or the AWA, a territory that can conceivably the guys could uh, drive, uh, could carpool from. Yeah. So he is flying in Briscoe. He's flying in Kaniski. He's flying in Johnny Valentine. Uh, he's flying in Dory uh, when Dory comes in or the other funks as well. But I, and I would imagine, I don't know how far Indianapolis is from St. Louis, but I would imagine Dick the Brewster would, would had earned a uh, plane ticket at that point in his career. <laughs> yeah, probably. Or at the very least, uh, bullied his way into getting one because who's going to tell Dick the Bruiser, <laughs> yes. no, you got to drive. But still, and even if they're flying, it's still a much less expensive flight than to bring in, say, Freddie Blassie from, you know, or or Dutch Savage or somebody like that. He's not flying yeah. guys in from the West Coast, with the exception of Kaniski, who's a former mm. world champion. Mm. Um, So Kaniski... Valentine, Briscoe, Dory Jr., Pat O'Connor, again, is local, but also is a former world heavyweight champion. So he's uh, positioned very well. He's also the booker at this point in time. Mm. In either late 69 or early 70, um, Heart of America bought a small piece of this territory uh, from, I believe, Eddie Quinn's widow. Does that ring a bell? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. I forget her name. Mrs. Mm. Mrs. Quinn. Miss, yes, there you go. Mrs. Quinn. <laughs> Some people called her the mighty Quinn, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, O'Connor obviously is going to be kept strong. But 1971 opened with a bang. On January 1st, Dory Funk Jr. came in to defend the world heavyweight title against Jack Briscoe. Um, prior to 71, they had 15 documented singles bouts against one another. Most of those were in Florida, and, and this bout was probably what really kicked off the Briscoes versus Funks as a feud involving not just Jack and Dory Jr., but also Jerry and Terry, and even sometimes Dory Sr. on a national level. In fact, uh, Dave Meltzer said that this show on January 1st at Keel was a legitimate sellout with thousands of fans turned away, some of whom were so upset they actually turned over one of the ticket booths. Wow. I feel sorry for the guy who had my clicker yeah. <laughs> on that <laughs> night. I, I guess I'm glad they didn't take the clicker. Otherwise, I wouldn't be holding it right now. 
Yeah, it's true. Wow. <laughs> Maybe this is a count of how many people uh, turned over the ticket booth. <laughs> to, yeah, it took 65 <laughs> of them. I counted them all. He's dedicated to his craft. <laughs> uh. Uh, so on this match, uh, during this match, Dory won the first fall after about 35 minutes. Another 14 minutes went by and then Briscoe won the second fall. Uh, and then the two went the rest of the 60 minute time limit without a winner. Um, in St. Louis, Jack then spent much of the year reestablishing himself as a top contender, including high profile singles wins over Pack Song and Baron Von Raschke. And because my friend Chris Knights will go nuts if I don't mention this, um, in St. Louis, he was simply called Von Raschke because Sam uh, could not, uh, did not like gimmicky stuff. So he would mm. refuse to call him a Baron. Just Von Raschke. Interesting. Just Von Raschke. Um, but these ho- these high-profile singles wins got Jack a rematch with Dory later in the year. And that one, which featured former boxing great Joe Lewis as the special referee, saw Dory win outright. Hmm. Uh, to read more about Briscoe and Funk's encounters in St. Louis in the early 70s and how Harley Race was inserted into the title mix, you can check out the profile on uh, St. Louis, written by our good friend David Gibb uh, on the website as part of A Year in the Life. And it really shows you how Mushnick was able to move the various puzzle pieces month after month to keep everybody uh, in the right pecking order. It also talks about the controversy over Dory's accident in 1973 and how it led to Mushnick bringing in a surprising name for several shows in 1973. John, who was that? Oh, you stumped me here. Oh, 1973. 73. A big name from a promotion not normally affiliated with uh, the NWA in St. Louis. Uh, he ended up getting a title shot against Harley Race in St. Louis in 1973. Bruno Sammartino. Oh, on my birthday, June 15th, <laughs> 1973. Yes. I don't know. I don't know how I blanked on that yeah. of all things. Yeah. And th- this was, it's in, that's the date of it, right? Is it yeah. June 15th, 97? Yeah. And, and yeah. this was sort of a hedge against it in case Mushnick found out that the Funks were really doing shenanigans. No one knows the truth. Um, everyone seems to have their opinion. And of course, it all depends on which person you talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, but this truly was a hedge. Um, if if uh, the Funks were going to sort of mess around with this prestigious title, well, there's another prestigious title uh, with a <laughs> respectable, decent, you know, uh, yeah. athlete and human being. And I can, uh, I can always uh, bring him in. Yeah. So St. Louis is generally known for being the most sports-oriented promotion of its era wins and losses meant something a wrestler who won a match would often move up to a higher spot on the card, the following show and vice versa. And that's not to say other territories didn't do it like that because they absolutely did. Um, but the difference here is so many of these guys are here for a long period of time. Normally in a territory, when a new heel comes in, they work their way up to and get to the main events. And then once they lose, they're either moved down or they're on their way out here. Sam had a a really interesting way of like when Briscoe goes Broadway with Dory, they can't do a rematch right away, which is how most territories would do things. So here he sort of, it's considered a step backwards for Jack because he didn't win. And he has to sort of reestablish himself by getting clean wins over Pac Song and Von Mm. Raschke to earn another shot at Dory 10 months later. 
Um, by and large, disqualifications or countouts were used sparingly and just to build to a rematch that would have a conclusive finish. But I did find one gimmicky finish, John. Oh, so yeah. anyone that claims that Mushnick uh, never <laughs> did any shenanigans, I call BS. Yeah. Uh, there was a handicap match, and they actually did handicap matches a couple of times a year. And this isn't what we think of as a handicap match. It's typically uh, two separate singles matches held back to back, where uh, the the single person had to beat both members of the other team in order to win the match. Oh. And so here we have Dick the Bruiser, uh, the babyface, against the heels Harley Race and Hans Schmidt in April. And it was advertised that Dick had to win one fall from each wrestler in straight falls within 45 minutes to win the match. So Bruiser pins Hans to win the first fall. But in the second fall, Harley and uh, Hans both knocked down. Oh, sorry. Harley and Bruiser both knocked down the referee. And both men got disqualified. So Hmm. since Dick the Bruiser did not pin both men in straight falls, Hans and Harley won the match, even though they they didn't win a single fall. Wow, that is a screwy, screwy St. Louis finish. Yeah, so uh, again, as much as we talk about, oh, this promotion never did that funny stuff, they all did the funny stuff, even yeah, yeah. Sam. And if you try and tell me that <laughs> Bosch never did any funny stuff, there were at least two matches that had a stipulation where you had to put your opponent into a bathtub in the middle of the ring. <laughs> Let alone the stuff with, uh, was it Bourne had to ride the donkey around the ring? Yeah, there's that. And there was, I think, uh, it was a wild bull curry and, and a, like the loser bathes a jackass. Yeah. Another one. Yeah. That might have been one of the two bathtub things I'm talking about. <laughs> but there was a match between Bosch and Gary Hart where they had the bathtub in the ring and to win, oh, you yeah. had to p- throw your opponent into the tub. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So uh, we've talked about some of the top stars of the territory, but let's take a look at the, at the roster as a whole. And for most of the wrestlers, John and I will mention some factoids about them. Uh, and my factoids generally come from WrestlingData.com and, and discuss frequent opponents or partners or interesting notes about matches they had. Uh, and, and really, WrestlingData.com has become a really invaluable resource, not just for looking at who won, who lost, but really drilling it down to, uh, you know, who was this guy's most frequent tag team partner, mm-hmm. when and where did they team up, that sort of thing. Um, so we're going to list the wrestlers, grouping them into categories based on their average spot rating for the year. And for our newer listeners, the spot rating stands for statistical position over time. And it's an, it's an exclusive statistic that I invented, uh, that measures a wrestler's average position on the cards. Again, main eventers have a higher spot rating than wrestlers who are in the mid cards who have a higher spot rating than wrestlers who are in the opening matches. So we'll start with the main eventers who had a spot rating between 0.80 and 1. And of course, 1 is the maximum. If someone was always in the main event, their spot rating would be a 1.00. So uh, in the main eventers, uh, baby faces, first up is Dick the Bruiser. Dick the Bruiser was a uh, 16th round draft pick, offensive tackle, I believe, for the Green Bay Packers in 1951, despite sitting out the 1950 season as a transfer at the University of Nevada and not having played any college football at all in 1949. (laughs) And he still went in the 16th. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Now, my factoid about Dick the Bruiser is not about Dick the Bruiser. It's about someone he teamed with very early in his career, just because I never heard of this guy. And when I 
looked into him. I, I, he has a fascinating story. So one of Dick the Bruiser's earliest matches saw him team with Johnny Mucci. John, do you know anything about Johnny Mucci? I, 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 the name is familiar, but I don't know anything. All right. His, his real name was John. I'm uh, probably not pronouncing this right, but Mucha Charo. Okay. Uh, he is believed to have been the first POW taken in Japan during World War II and the last one released. Oh, boy. As for why they kept him till the very end, <laughs> uh, he was a bit of a troublemaker. Uh, it's it's generally believed that he would start fights not only with uh, the fellow prisoners of war, but also with guards as a distraction so other POWs could sneak away and steal food. Huh. He also is once uh, said to have knocked out in, in one fight, knocked out 18 Japanese guards before he was finally subdued. <laughs> wow. Uh, so yeah, Johnny Mucci, and I, I oh. apparently upon returning home after the war, he was referred to as Mucci the Magnificent, and he, yeah. his wrestling career seems to have been not quite a gimmicky attraction, but probably something along the lines of a Sam Shepard type deal, where okay. he might not have been the best wrestler, but he had such a unique story that people would come to see him yeah, in yeah. action. So oh. sorry that my oh. factoid was about Dick the Bruiser, but hopefully yeah, you've but learned something about Johnny Mucci. That you didn't know. (laughs) Next up is uh, Jack Briscoe. Jack Briscoe. In 1974, uh, Jack Briscoe defended the NWA title against Larry Lane, a man who he also beat in an NCAA tournament nearly 10 years earlier. Yeah, we've talked about that. In that same tournament, although never facing either of them, was uh, another future pro wrestler, Buck Ramstead. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, now, Jack, of course, his most frequent tag team partner over the course of his career was his brother, Jerry. But his second most frequent tag team partner was another man who was best known for being one of two brothers in professional wrestling. And that was Nick Kozak. Huh. Uh, we have a couple of heel heel wrestlers that are main eventers based on our spot ratings. First up is Harley Race. Harley Race. Harley Race was the president of the freshman class of Quitman High School in 1957 to 1958. Now, he uh, he began his full-time career working for working for Goulas under the name Jack Long. And I was looking through some of his early stuff, and he, about a month into his career, he faced uh, Jackie Fargo. And he only has three documented singles bouts against Fargo, the last one of which was in 1966. But talk about two guys that seem like would be total opposites, yet I'm sure would have a great match working with one mm-hmm. another as mm-hmm. uh, Harley Race and Jackie Fargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up is Don't Call Him Baron in St. Louis, <laughs> Von Raschke. Uh, after a stint as a highly decorated amateur wrestler and serving in the Army, the future Baron, future and sometime Baron, uh, worked as a junior high school teacher. Huh. Uh, now, his two most frequent opponents over the course of his career were Ricky Steamboat and Jerry Blackwell. So you've got one of the smoothest, most acrobatic wrestlers in history and Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> I was hoping that's where you were going. <laughs> uh, next up, we have the upper mid Carters who have a spot rating between a point six zero and a point eight zero. On the babyface side, we start with Pat O'Connor. Pat O'Connor was part owner of a bar in Kansas City, along with Bob Geigel and the Claw, Tom Andrews. Oh. 
Now, when uh, O'Connor lost the world heavyweight title to Buddy Rogers in Chicago, Pat was quoted as saying the crowd of 38,000 fans was so loud that even though they were outdoors, when Buddy was yelling to sell the effects of a hold, Pat couldn't actually hear him. (laughs) He could see his mouth opening up to yell, but couldn't even hear him. That's how loud... The wow. 38,000 fans was that that was Comiskey, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. At Comiskey Park in Chicago. Uh, up next is someone we're going to be talking about a little bit later. And that is Sweet Daddy Siki, followed by Rufus R. Jones. Rufus R. Jones, we talked about a couple of months, months ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, not to be outdone by Pat O'Connor and Bob Geigel. Rufus opened a restaurant in Kansas City after retiring. Yeah, he did. Now, um, one of the things we show with our statistics is that as a general rule of thumb, baby faces are more likely to win a match in this era than a heel. Um, as further evidence for that, Rufus has a winning record over the course of his career in singles matches against not only Harley Race, but also Ric Flair. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and and from what I understand, maybe that's why Flair didn't like working against him because he always had to lose. <laughs> yeah, not not the fact that he didn't like yeah. his uh, work rate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now on the heel side in the upper mid Carters, first up is uh, Hans Schmidt. So Schmidt's real ass real name was uh, Guy Larose, and uh, fellow Quebec wrestler Ovila Asseline also wrestled under the name Guy Larose. So there are some results from the mid-50s where you have Hans Schmidt, the actual Guy LaRose, wrestling Guy LaRose, who is actually Ovila Asselin. Uh Now, this was something I saw posted years, years ago on Wrestling Classics. Of all the men who never held the NWA World Heavyweight title, Hans apparently is the one who challenged for the title in the most different territories. Wow, that's a cool fact. Yeah, that's that's really cool that someone did that research and came up with that. And that tells you how highly regarded he was, that Mm. even though he never held the title, he was like a Johnny Valentine, just sort of, you know, right up there with them. Uh, Up next was uh, Blackjack Lanza. Lanza was not very involved in athletics in high school, uh, but was a member of the drama club. Another one of those. Uh, the only sport he participated in at De La Salle Catholic High School in Minnesota was intramural basketball, where his coach was Michael Carbo, the brother of Wally Carbo. Huh. Interesting. Uh, Lanza was clearly a favorite of Mushnick as he was booked in St. Louis uh, more than once every single calendar year from 1967 all the way through 1978. Hmm. Uh, that tells you how how highly regarded he was uh-huh. by Sam. Um, next up is Pac Song. Pac Song was uh, afflicted with and actually died from Marfan syndrome, a, a rare genetic disorder. I'm assuming we know more about this disease, I guess you want to call it disorder now, but there's a lot of heart issues that can go along with it. And a career in pro wrestling was definitely a high risk activity for someone with this affliction. In some cases, anything above a brisk walk could be considered potentially risky activity. Um, Joey Ramone also had Marfan syndrome Two two very unique looking guys there. You know, what's amazing, John. I had the same exact factoid for Pac Song, that <laughs> Marfan syndrome. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll add a couple of things. Uh, okay. 
Many people with this disorder are above average height with disproportionately long and slender limbs, which mm-hmm. describes Pak Song to a T. You mm-hmm. mentioned Joey Ramone, who I also had uh, as one of two other well-known people with the disorder. The other one was Peter Mayhew, who portrayed ah, Chewbacca, Chewbacca yeah. in the yeah. uh, Star Wars movies. Huh. Finally, on the heel side of the upper mid-carters is someone uh, who we will be talking about in a little bit. Uh, in addition to Sweet Daddy Siki, we'll be talking in depth uh, about Dr. Big Bill Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we're going to move to the mid-carter category. And these wrestlers had a spot rating between a .40 and a .60. On the BBV side is Jerry Briscoe. There's a little trivia that I found on the uh, Mid-Atlantic Gateway site who are full of fantastic trivia. Um, Jerry and his brother Jack are the only two wrestlers to have held both the Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight title and its forerunner, the Eastern States Heavyweight title. Now, he, of course, had numerous tag team title reigns with his brother Jack, but other partners that he had uh, title runs with uh, were Thunderbolt Patterson, Rocky Johnson, Bobby Duncombe, Bob Backlund, and a very short run as Georgia Tag Team Champs with a man who would allegedly put a hit out on him a few years later, Ole Anderson. (laughs) Uh, Up next, Dewey Robertson. Dewey Robertson was once a guest star on the Canadian medical procedural drama Police Surgeon, where he played a wrestler who was killed in the ring by another wrestler who was portrayed by Merlin Olsen. Uh, Dewey's full-time wrestling career ended in the late 80s, but uh, as late as the mid-90s, he would pop up occasionally on shows in Canada. In 1995, he wrestled in a tag team match with his son uh, against Joey Legend and Sexton Hardcastle, who can be seen weekly on All Elite Wrestling uh, Programming Entertainment as uh, Adam Copeland, (laughs) the artist formerly known as Edge. Yes. Uh, Greg Valentine was a babyface mid-carder. Rick Valentine was married on the beach in Tampa, and all the guests were required to wear bathing suits. His best man, Brutus Beefcake, wore a tiger print thong. And no one had even told him that he was required to wear that. No, he just, just showed up in it. Just, just showed up like that, showing it off. <laughs> he said, well, it's Tuesday. This is what I wear on Tuesdays. <laughs> um, so he's a baby face. And what's interesting, at this point in his career, he's a heel everywhere else. Not only that, but he's typically not being billed as Greg Valentine. He's billed as Johnny Fargo and teaming up with, uh, with Don. But here... They acknowledged the uh, relationship, although I, I assume they would insinuate they were brothers as opposed to father and son. Mm. But um, just like Johnny was being used as babyface, we'll talk about him in a little bit. Greg, uh, for that reason, was used here as a babyface. Now, used as heels here uh, were Angelo Poffo. Angelo Poffo uh, was a competitive chess player in his younger days. Did he ever play chess while doing sit-ups? <laughs> I don't know. That's... Uh, hmm. <laughs> So he set the world record for sit-ups in 1945. Mm-hmm. In four hours and 10 minutes, he did 6,033 sit-ups. So mm-hmm. I did the math. That's an <laughs> average of 24 sit-ups per minute, which means one every two and a half seconds for four hours plus straight. Uh, another heel, and this is another example of because his brother is being used as a heel, He that's probably why he's being used as a heel here, because he was typically a babyface in many other places, and that's Dan Miller. 
Dan, uh, after wrestling, worked uh, security in Tampa and was actually the last surviving of the five legit Miller brothers, Bob, Bill, Dick, and Jerry. He passed away at the age of 84 in 2016. Uh, Towards the end of his career, Dan Miller worked for All Japan under a mask as Blue Shark. And on that tour, he teamed often with Mark Lewin, who seven years later would become the Purple Haze. <laughs> so, wow. I, I, you know, you think about the Purple Haze coming, you know, coming up from uh, from the sea. I wonder if there was a blue shark chasing yeah. him. <laughs> uh, finally, we have the uh, preliminary wrestlers. And these uh, wrestlers had a spot rating below uh, 0.40. First up uh, on the babyface side is Murray Cummings. Uh, also, for most of his career, worked at an Ontario steel foundry. And once again, you stole my factoid. <laughs> <laughs> so we will just move along to uh, Steve Bolas. Uh, uh, Steve Bolas was often billed as a cousin of Chris and John Tolas, presumably because their names sounded alike. Um, yeah, he broke into the business alongside John and Chris in the late 50s. And some of Steve's final matches in the United States came in 1982 against John Tolis. Huh. Uh, preliminary heels. First up is Don Fargo. Oh, uh, did we did we skip someone there? Uh, did we? We very we, well may have. Who did we, we skip? Miss our, our, our friend uh, Luis Arriba Martinez. Oh, did yes, I mean? we did. Wow, I didn't even have him on my list. Yeah, Luis Arriba oh. Martinez. Good catch. Yeah. Yes, um, he, I love, I love, I don't love this for him. I love this fact. I don't love it for him. Lost part of his right index finger in a wrestling match with a bear. <laughs> uh, I tried to figure out which wrestling bear it was. And the only <sighs> occasion I could find him in the ring with a bear was for McGurk, actually, in, in, in 1960 against Terrible Ted. I think it was a, as an eight man, one bear battle royal type of deal. But I, I cannot <laughs> confirm that was the, the match that that match or the bear that did it. Eight man, one bear. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not first, first there was two girls, one cup. Now there's eight man, eight man, one bear. Yeah. Oh, well, my apologies for to uh, any any uh, big fans of Luis Martinez. I did not mean to skip him. I had a transcription error uh, copying over my notes. So now we'll move to the heels, and now we'll move to Don Fargo. Don Fargo won the Mister Pittsburgh Bodybuilding title in 1952. Uh, earlier on, I talked about Harley Race having a handful of encounters with Jackie Fargo early in his career. Well, in the summer of 1953, a few years before they first teamed up, Don, who, when he was wrestling as Don Colt, wrestled three times in Florida against Jackie Fargo. Hmm. Uh, next up is Benny Ramirez. Benny is another one we talked about uh, a few a few months back. Uh, in addition to working as the mummy, he also worked in Japan as the killer which I'm assuming was a, a mass gimmick of some sort. I, yeah, I would imagine so. Um, yeah, we talked at length about his, uh, his life and his tragic passing in a plane accident, a plane crash uh, several months ago uh, last year on this podcast. And then finally, um, and this is someone who uh, was working for Dick the Bruiser and had, had been working as a baby face there for a, a while, but here he is positioned as a heel and that is Moose uh, Cholock. From uh, about the mid-70s and the mid-90s, uh, Moose Cholock worked for the city of Chicago as an engineer. And he met his wife, Arlene, at a Friday night fish fry at his Aww. family's tavern in Chicago, <laughs> and the two were married for 45 years. Uh, that's sweet. 
Now, two notable omissions omissions from the roster are a couple of wrestlers who were here several times during the year, but not enough to be considered a regular. So Johnny Valentine, um, he was a babyface, and he had five matches in St. Louis during the year with an average spot rating of 0.80. So he was a main eventer, just not a full-time main eventer. And Dory Funk Jr. had six matches in St. Louis during the year, all of which were main events for a perfect spot rating of 1.00. Now, uh, Dory was, he's defending the title here against both heels and baby faces. However, he is basically positioned as a baby face. Uh, And in fact, when Terry and Dory Sr. come in, they are clearly um, teaming with other baby faces and wrestling against heels. So Dory Jr. is for all intents and purposes, slotted as a babyface here. A couple of the wrestlers in the upper mid-carder category are guys that we haven't come across yet in our coverage of 1971 across various territories. Both were beginning to wind down their days as full-timers, but both are important figures in wrestling history. So let's talk about both of them, and we'll start with Dr. Big Bill Miller. Uh, yeah. John, you uh, sent me a... Uh, picture of a program from 1965 from Baltimore, <laughs> Maryland, where Miller is referred to as a six foot five inch giant Ohio veterinarian. I'd love, yeah. Like how, uh, that's, can you be, is there possible to be billed better than that? I don't think so. Now at Ohio state, uh, Bill Miller excelled in wrestling football, the shot put and the discus throw. Uh, Mm. He then served in the Navy before going to pro wrestling, and he became a veterinarian not long after starting his wrestling career. He is featured in Greg Oliver and Steven Johnson's book, The Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Heels. Uh, John, uh, if you have one or two interesting stories uh, from that uh, profile of Bill that you want to talk about. There's, uh, yes, there's one story that involves Don Leo Jonathan. And he reminds me a lot of Don Leo Jonathan, not just because they're both gigantic men, not of them both being men of faith, uh, but because they're both guys who had successful careers outside of wrestling, you know, both of them and both of them were very generous in the way that they did business, whether it's Don Leo putting guys over on his way out of the territory or Bill Miller losing to younger guys on uh, making them look like world beaters on St. Louis TV. And I can't help but but wonder if if those guys having these fulfilling lives outside of wrestling sort of empowered them to be able to look at their place in wrestling as almost secondary at that point. Like, you want me to lose to Chief J Strongbow on the way out? No problem. You want me to make Ted Oates look like a million bucks on TV? You got it, boss. You know, and also having just having six foot six, 300 pound dudes who are willing to do business like this is just great. But the the story that I like is one John Leo Jonathan told about riding with Bill Miller and they start getting hassled by a bunch of guys. Uh, and Miller told Don Leo, hey, you wait in the car. I'll take care of this. You know, and just Don Leo doesn't go any into very much detail, but it's as he puts it, uh, Bill Miller taught the four guys a lesson in respect in a hurry. <laughs> so it's like, like, can you imagine like being like, like four kids in a car with their friends 
just like yeah, you know, flashing the high beams or whatever, throwing empty beer right. cans at this car, and they pull over, and for <laughs> big Bill Miller and Don Leo Jonathan get out. It's like a it's like a driver's ed video, you know. It's like <laughs> <laughs> it's. Oh, so early in his career, uh, Bill started teaming with Edward Albers, who had been working as Carl von Albers and Edmund von Albers. But in 1956, the two went to Northern California, and Albers changed his ring name to Ed Miller, and the two were billed as a brother team. So even though Bill had several other wrestlers, at least one of whom was a pro wrestler, he had a worked brother as his first uh big tag team partner. Uh, Bill would later team up with uh, younger brother Dan over the years. And John, you curated a playlist of YouTube footage of Bill over the years. I think you've got a total of seven uh, matches on the playlist spanning from 1957 all the way through 1974. So we will um, we will uh, put this up as a playlist on our YouTube channel. So be sure to check for charting the territories on YouTube. Uh, but John, if you can list all seven of these matches and then uh, for a couple of them, uh, discuss them in a little more detail. First off, we've got the Miller brothers versus Ken Kenneth and Pat Flanagan from Maple Leaf Gardens, January 57. I've got the Miller brothers versus the fabulous Kangaroos, the circa 58. I've got a couple uh, Ilio DePaulo matches from Buffalo. Those are circa 59, I think. I don't have exact dates on those. Um, I've got Bill Miller versus John Ramirez, WWA, probably mid-70s. And I've got some cool St. Louis uh, film footage, Harley Race, Bill Miller versus Jack Briscoe and Black Angus, 74. And Bill Miller and uh, our friend Moose Cholak, also from 74. Um what I really want to talk about, like the first couple here, um, a couple things about the Miller brothers and Big Bill specifically. These are just very large men, very large men. Like yeah, Ed, Ed, Ed was a big boy, too. I was surprised Ed to see somehow, he held his own. Yeah, he somehow looked almost looks bigger than Bill at certain points. Just the way he holds his body, you know, uh, Bill is a great heel because it's obvious that he can wrestle, but. He'd rather pull your tights or, or pull your hair rather than work his way out of a hole, which you can because he's a foot taller than you and 100 pounds bigger than you. He'd rather just stretch out an arm or a leg and get to the ropes. Um, as a heel team, they do one of my favorite heel moves, whispering to their partner's ear in the corner. The visual of these two gigantic men leaning over, whispering to each other, covering their mouths with their hands like they're like they're little kids in the back seat on family <laughs> vacation is beautiful to behold um there's two referees for this tag match at the maple leaf gardens uh like you'd see in st louis for tag matches um and the millers are somehow able to distract both of them so one of them whoever the legal man is can choke their opponent or otherwise get up to no good um also this is true for nearly all of these videos from the earliest footage i've seen of him to the last latest footage i've seen of him for a guy who is six six or a legit six four bill miller can take some bumps um ken kenneth and pat flanagan here their opponents are not big dudes but when miller takes a hip toss or gets beeled he flies like like almost all the way across the wing ring you know he takes these bumps over the top rope as well like after missing a big punch he just goes over the top to the floor it's so impressive seeing a guy of this size do this especially in like the mid 50s you're just used to like 
you're just not used to seeing this happen. Um, he does one point. He does this move I've never seen before. It's like he's got one of one of the guys in a front face lock type chancery move, and he lifts him off the ground and does a giant swing with him in a front face lock, which just seems like it could kill someone. Um, and their finisher here is like the Ohio backbreaker, sort of like Antonino Rocca's Argentine backbreaker torture rack type thing. But one of the Millers will have the guy up, and he'll go back to back with the other Miller and just pass the guy back and forth. It's like little kids playing with toys. Um, it's just a, a fantastic, fantastic match. Um, and then the fabulous kangaroos one. If you watch one of these matches, please watch this one. Uh, yeah, that sounds fun. Bill sells his butt off and he's taking big bumps for the kangaroos who are six, eight, six or eight inches shorter than him. Flying all over the place, he takes a like this crazy bump from the apron to the floor. At one point, he's just waiting for the tag, and one of the kangaroos hits him with a forearm, and he just like strut like flies straight back out of frame onto the floor. It looks like just rather than just like crumpling onto the apron, he just like he just poof gone. And it's it's so impressive looking. And there's a wild double DQ finish with the ref totally losing control. The guy from the like the state athletic commissioners are in the ring waving their arms around. There's cops in the ring trying to get everybody out. Again, way more exciting than you're expecting from this black and white TV match from the late 50s. Those are probably the two I'd recommend of all these. And that's saying a lot since we've got like Harley Race and Jack Briscoe yeah. and some other ones. But these are those first two are just so much. So great. So great. Um, so, you know, Dr. Big Bill Miller is one of those rare instances in wrestling of truth and advertising because he was a doctor. <laughs> mm -hmm. And as we just discussed, uh, you can definitely tell that he was big. But how big was he? In particular, John, how big was he as a 19 year old? And the answer oh. can be found on his draft card. <laughs> yes. Yes. He's a legitimately uh, six foot four and 220 pounds. At 19 That's, years old, that is a big. Just imagine if you're if you're a if you're a housewife whose whose dog Fluffy gets sick and you have to run to the nearest vet, <laughs> and this giant man says, "Here, give me your little dog." It's <laughs> it's so it's so interesting. Like working on his veterinary degree while also working as a wrestler. You know, I think in in uh, there was a Meltzer's obituary for him, like it was Red Bastine is it? You know, while the rest of us were, were had beer in our hands, he had books. You know, uh, you know, and he would finish up his main event at 11 p.m. at midnight, drive however many hours hours back home to Columbus, and have classes at 7 a.m. And what's really just I don't know if amusing is the right word, but the money he made from wrestling early on, at least, was much better than the money he was able to make as a vet. But he like his love for veterinary medicine was such that if he was homesteading in a territory for an extended period of time, he was go volunteer at the local vet office just to keep up with new scientific developments uh, in the field. You know, which is, it's so yeah. it's so interesting. Uh, he was a huge star from the late 50s through the 60s and then into the early 70s. Um, the list of his 20 most frequent opponents reads like a variable who's who of professional wrestling. Uh, it mm -hmm. includes Bobo Brazil. Bruno Sammartino, Pat O'Connor, Johnny Valentine, Enrique Torres, Buddy Rogers, Whipper Watson, Dick the Bruiser, Ricky Dozon, and Don Leo Jonathan. 
Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, that's an all-star team right there. Um, so you mentioned he always was still in, you know, kept up with the veterinary arts. When his in-ring career ended, he opened up a practice in Ohio. Uh, mm-hmm. And I believe his specialty was uh, autopsies, doing autopsies yeah. on animals. Uh, he passed away in 1997 at the age of 69, suffering a heart attack after working out at the gym. Mm-hmm. Now, John... When you were a kid and you heard that someone passed away at 69, you said, okay, they lived a full life, you know, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> now that I'm 52, I'm yeah. like, my God, that's tomorrow. That's like a week yeah. from now. My God, yeah. what have I done with my life? And he was working out at the gym. <laughs> I was Jeez. at the gym this morning. I'm like, yeah. now is, is it my time? Yeah. <laughs> and he was, it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's, yes, it's sad that he died. It's, you know, rel- relatively, relatively young, you know. But he was also, uh, you know, inducted into the Ohio State Sports the Hall of Fame later that year, you know, posthumously, which is right. a kind of it's I would have loved for him to have been able to, you know, experience that. Of course. Yeah. So uh, now next up is someone that is uh, is still with us, believe it or not. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is Sweet Daddy Siki. Mm-hmm. Um, not much is known about his life before wrestling. Uh, in fact, nobody has ever come forward with his real name. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, his earliest documented matches were in 1955, but Wikipedia, as well as other sources, say he was born in 1940. So when you do the math, not impossible, but it seems a little young. So given that we know so little about his early life, it's very possible that even what little information we do know uh, might be incorrect. Yeah, especially when you consider the fact that he was uh, was in the army before that. Mm-hmm. So you got to you got to add on a few years there too. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. So that that makes the 1940 birth date almost certainly incorrect. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, it's interesting too. Like his 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 first real break in wrestling sort of uh, goes back to uh, another. Another guy we talked about probably ooh, maybe I don't know, maybe three years ago at this point, um, working for Elephant Boy uh, in New Mexico, wasn't it? Yeah, where he actually this is after Elephant Boy uh, went sideways with Jack Pfeffer, started a new promotion, and Siki was of a training at uh, Shandor Sabo's school in L.A. and I guess couldn't get. Uh, license there and i guess they're more fast and loose with the uh the uh athletic commission there in new mexico so he was able to get you know right uh his his, his, uh entrance into the business that way okay interesting so and for the first few years of his career uh siki wrestled as reggie siki or reginald siki and this likely was a nod to a wrestler from a generation prior who was named reginald siki and that siki may have been the first black wrestler to tour the United States uh, at a time when there were very few black wrestlers, but the ones that were around generally stayed local to one area. Reginald may have been the first to be able to travel to different places. Uh, There's a great article on that Siki on Slam Wrestling, and it was written uh, by John Langmead a few years ago. And John Langmead just recently released a book about Jack Curley and uh, other notable wrestling figures of the early 20th century mm-hmm. entitled Ballyhoo. Um, I have the book. I haven't cracked it open yet. Um, I, I'm, I'm deep into a book right now, I, um, but I'm not going to say what it is until we get to this month I learned. 
but I've been, <laughs> uh, but I've been learning a lot from uh, the the newest book on my shelf. And then when I, when I'm done with that, I'm going to crack open Ballyhoo. Uh, as for the name Sweet Daddy Siki, he first took on that ring name, I believe, in the fall of 1958 in Southern California. So whatever problems he had a few years ago in California, getting a license he was able to fix in 1958, he had gone to California after a run in Utah and Idaho, where he had held the region's tag team titles with Lou Shoulders Newman, Mm. who, of course, has my second favorite body part (laughs) nickname after who, John? I I believe it's Jack the Neck Vansky, right? That is correct. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of names, I'm very... I don't know. I don't. I don't know to the the answer to this question, but I'm wondering where he would have heard the name Reggie Seeky because it seems like the original Seeky was sort of predates. I know he was a wrestling fan before he got into wrestling. He's talked about that, but he seems to would have he would have predated his fandom. No, am I incorrect there, timeline wise? Yeah. So it's likely some uh, a wrestler suggested another wrestler that maybe knew the original, so might have suggested it to him. That's yeah, how a lot of wrestling names come about. Maybe Elephant Boy. I thought that was the could only like, yeah. could you yeah, work with him because it's yeah. Hmm. You know, if it wasn't Elephant Boy, someone else had worked with him or heard about him and saw hmm. this guy and said, "Hey, I, I think this name, you know, this name would work for you." So in 1961, Seeky moved to Toronto which not only was a good transportation hub for many of the places he was working over the years, but it was also due to the city being much more racially tolerant than mm-hmm. others in North America. Because at this point, uh, this, this point in time, Siki was married to a, uh, a white woman uh, and, and he's lived in Toronto ever since. Yeah. So I uh, hear all the stories, like a lot of, you, you don't know what's, what's legend, what's true. You hear, you hear some stories that are just like obvious, you know, visible, direct forms of racism. And aside from those, definitely more covert types of racism that probably occurred far more often, not just from fans, but from promoters. Like another reason him moving like promoters were appalled to learn that he was married to a white woman, you know, and his booking started to dry up. That's, it, you know, it's think about that. That's yeah. it's wild. sad, but true. A sign of the times. And also, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, wrestling is, uh, you yeah. know, has, has always drawn a certain element. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, it's generally believed that Siki was the first black wrestler to challenge for the NWA World Heavyweight title. He had actually worked against Buddy Rogers many times over the years prior to the summer of 61. But uh, after Rogers uh, beat O'Connor at Comiskey. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Rogers defended it against Siki uh, twice in New Jersey within the first month of his uh, world title reign. Mm. And and so, uh, uh, you know, it depends on what you consider a world title and, and what the time frame is. But I think when we're referring to the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight title, I believe Siki uh, was the first. And that would have been in July of 1961. Uh, besides wrestling, he also dabbled in music. He released an oh, album yeah. in 1970 that consisted mostly of covers of country music songs, but also at least one that was an original song written by his wife. Oh. And John, you own this on eight track. Is that correct? I do. I do. I am in possession, I am in possession of the Sweet Daddy Seeky eight track tape. But I cannot listen to it. I was going to ask my next question was if you had the <laughs> means with which to listen to it. I do not. I do not, sadly. 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, Siki cut back on his in-ring activities significantly around 1974 or so, though he would still pop up every now and then, often around Canada. His last U.S. run for a territory was in 1985 when he worked in Memphis. And he mm. was brought in by Tux Newman, oh, yeah. uh, who, of course, is Jeff Walton, uh, to help Tux in his feud with Jerry Lawler. But things didn't go quite the way that Tux had planned. And no. uh, that segment is one of the uh, videos that you have that you put together uh, for your curated playlist for Sweet Daddy Seeky. So mm -hmm. just like we did for Bill, uh, I'll tell our listeners, uh, go to the Charting the Territories YouTube channel to see these playlists. But John, if you can list uh, all the matches and then pick a couple to uh, talk a little bit more about. Cool. The uh, early ones I've got are uh, Seeky versus Fred Atkins. Not sure of the date. I'm pretty sure it's Chicago. Uh, then I've got Siki and Sailor Art Thomas versus the Sicilians, Lou Albano and Tony Altamori. Uh, then I've got a two or three, uh, three uh, film clips from Maple Leaf Gardens, 1962. Color, I think, 16 millimeter film. It's great to see Siki in color. Uh, I've got that interview. Uh, I think it's after the Fred Atkins match. Something they're talking with uh, Siki just about his record, about his recording career. Uh, then I've got the Tux Newman clip we talked about, and I've got a, a later period Seeky from uh, International Wrestling in Quebec from the late 80s there. Um, ah, the Sweet Daddy Seeky and Art Thomas versus the Sicilians is, 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 is interesting to watch. I love, it's so cool seeing young and in-shaped Lou Albano here and tony altamari they're both they're both in, in decent shape but they don't look anywhere as near as impressive as sweet daddy siki and sailor art thomas who looks like he is actually carved out of granite um and siki as the young baby face he still has the dark hair uh he just he's an amazing 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 shape um and the Sicilians, it's like a two out of three falls match. Sicilians was the first by DQ, and Thomas wins the second with a bear hug, so they win it in two straight falls. The Sicilians are, of course, great over-the-top heels. Everything is super exaggerated. And Siki is one of those things that they would do. Again, this is a sign of the times. With you know, A lot of times he's in the territory or on for, in for a TV. You get paired off with the other top african-american guy like bearcat Wright or sailor r thomas here when he's a baby face or duke noble when he was when he's a heel it's just it's just what they did with him a lot of the time um i really like these maple leaf gardens clips they're sh short they're like a minute or two each but you get to see sweet daddy Siki full color as a heel with the blonde hair the multicolored ring jacket getting heat jaw jacking with the fans in the Haystacks Muldoon match we've got from 62, he hits a series of amazing looking drop kicks. And after the last one, he does this move after he's he lands where it's like he's almost like he's doing the worm uh, 20 years before the worm existed. Uh, he does like the worm into like a reverse sort of kip up, if that makes sense. He just somehow worms his way back to a standing position. This is an incredibly athletic move that he's doing here. Uh, worms the, his way into a standing <laughs> position. I like that description. It does. It's exactly what he did. Uh, and the Brower Bulldog Brower match. 
is just a great brawl. The ref gets knocked out and Siki gives Brower like a half dozen swinging neck breakers. It's awesome. Get a Bruno run in at the end. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Those are, those are the two I'd recommend you guys. Watch. All right. So be sure to check those out. Uh, of course, there's a lot more about the territory on our website. You can look at the biggest feuds. The four biggest feuds by this measure all involved either Hans Schmidt or Jack Briscoe. Hans feuded with Rufus R. Jones and Pat O'Connor, and Briscoe feuded with uh, Dr. Big Bill Miller and Von Raschke. Uh, we also have attendance figures, thanks to WrestlingData.com, for 11 of the 17 St. Louis house shows during the year. The average attendance of those 11 shows was 9,396, so just under the 10,000 mark. But four shows drew over 11,000 fans. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, three shows uh, drew less than 8,000. So there's a, you know, a, a several thousand fan range between the highs and the lows. But all those numbers are a far cry from the paid attendance of 36,506 at the Georgia Dome when Goldberg beat Hulk Hogan. A very important number because it's what led John to victory <laughs> last month when he competed against Chris Zellner in Gordon Soley's uh. Championship Wrestling Trivia. I keep saying that this is we're we're treating this like a wrestler getting pushed up the cards where each month you face a a tougher opponent as you're moving up. Uh But one of the things Mm -hmm. I've neglected, John, was the televised squash match. (laughs) And I think especially especially after beating Zellner in one hell of a a close call last month. (laughs) I think it's time we give you a big match on TV to really show what you can do. So when I think of those okay. TV matches, I think of wrestlers, you know, from the eighties, I think of wrestlers like Gino Carabello or Thunderfoot or Randy Barber. I think of unpolished, unskilled wrestlers. So I went out, uh, cause a good friend of mine happens to be the most unpolished, unskilled, unprofessional professional wrestler. I know. And he is your challenger this month. Okay. My name is Matt Sells, and I challenge John Boucher to a round of Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Matt Sex Sells, independent wrestler extraordinaire, is your challenger this Ooh. month. So, Matt, okay. tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm the Boozerweight, the rock and roll model, Matt Sex Sells, 22-year Independent wrestling vet, you may have seen me job out on programs such as AEW Dark and Ring of Honor Wrestling. Uh, wrestled in 20 states, two different countries, and you'll find me currently all throughout the Southeast, mainly Georgia, including promotions such as Action Wrestling, Classic City Wrestling, Southern Fried Championship Wrestling, so on and so forth. You can follow me on X at the Boozerweight. And spell that, please. That is T-H-E-B-O-O-Z-E-R-W-E-I-G-H-T. All right. So that's a little bit about your opponent this month, Matt Sex Sells, a guy who, over the span of about a year and a half, 
didn't win a single match in about five different promotions, uh, indie promotions here in Georgia. He had a losing streak that lasted a really, really long time. So I figure if we're going to give you a shine match, John, he's the perfect opponent. But that being said, okay. but that being said, how embarrassing would it be, John, if you lost to the, this unprofessional professional wrestler? The pressure's on now. Because that. I have a lot of yeah. res- a lot of respect for his work. Absolutely, a lot of respect for his work. Just gonna say that often. A lot of respect for this work. All right, so just gonna leave leave it at that. So John is feeling respectful. So I will ask you to uh, please step into the isolation booth. Yes, here I go. And here are the rules for Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. Both Matt and John will have twenty seconds to answer each question. I will ask Matt all four questions first while John is in the isolation chamber we built in his home. Matt can ask for a hint for one of the first three questions. You must ask for the hint at the time the question is asked. The 20-second clock will be stopped while the hint is given. And you cannot ask for a hint for the fourth question. However, if you do ask for a hint, John will automatically be given the same hint for the same question and be given a hint for the fourth question. The correct answer to each question is what's written on the actual game card. And as a little bit of information, the game was released in 1987. If both Matt and John answer the same number of questions correctly, there will be a bonus question for a tiebreaker. Matt, John is safely sequestered in the isolation chamber. Are you ready to play Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia? I am ready. Is this where going to be a cocky hill? Question number one, which wrestling legend credited with inventing the flying dropkick died on March 15th, 1977 in New York City? Oh, God. Give me a hint. (laughs) Here is the or hint. Uh, And as soon as I'm finished with the hint, the clock will resume. He was born in Italy, though his family moved to South America when he was 15. Dominic Danucci? That is incorrect. Question number two. Who was the first publisher to devote an entire magazine to wrestling? Bill After. That is incorrect. <laughs> I knew that was incorrect. That was the only name I could have <laughs> Question number three. Matt. You better get question number three right. (laughs) Who made up the original Hart Foundation? Original Hart Foundation was Bret Hart and Jim the Evil Neidhart and Jimmy Hart. That is correct. Matt, you are one for three. The fourth and final question. This is a fill-in-the-blank question. And while normally those are the names of wrestling moves, which would have meant you're shit out of luck because you don't know any. (laughs) Grab a hole. <laughs> this, this is a match, uh, a match stipulation. So question number four, fill in the blank, blank lumberjack match. Blank lumberjack. <laughs> Fan participation lumberjack match. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Matt Self, uh, you have uh, gone. You've gotten uh, one question right out of four. Let's uh signal bat, John to about 250. <laughs> Congratulations, Booth, and see how he does. John. Whew, okay. 
Matt, Matt got one question right. He used a hint on question number one. So you will get a hint not only for that question, but also question number four. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Question number one. And again, immediately after I ask the question, I will uh, give you the hint. Which wrestling legend credited with inventing the flying dropkick died on March 15th, 1977 in New York City? Hint. He was born in Italy, though his family moved to South America when he was 15. I would guess that to be 76 in New York City. Antonina Rocca? That is correct. Got your first question right. You are now tied with Matt. If you get one of the next three questions right, John, you win. Question number two. Who was the first publisher to devote an entire magazine to wrestling? I will guess Stanley Weston. Stanley Weston is correct. That being said, that's the answer on the card. I don't yeah. know that it's right, <laughs> but within a few years, um, he, he, yeah, he came out there. So, but that's what's on the card. So that is correct. You have won. You have won your enhancement match. Ah, well, as I like, I, I have respect for my well, opponent, but up respect yeah, for my well, opponent as always. Absolutely. So I think, I think we should see if you can go four for four though. Is, is that, I don't want to showboat, but. I, well, but that's all, John, remember, I'm trying to push you. That's the whole point of these TV matches. You're supposed to not just, you're supposed to not just eke out a win over him. You're supposed to destroy him. Okay. I'll, I'll, okay. Okay. Let's I on. need, I need you to have a killer attitude. If I'm going to give you a bigger right, match right. next Slap, month, I'm slapping myself in the face. Okay. Here, all right. Here, question, question number three. And before I ask it, I will say the same thing I said to Matt before I asked it, John, you better get this one, right? Oh, <laughs> Who made up the original heart foundation? Uh, Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart? That is correct. Okay, I thought it was a trick. Three for three. No, and that's and that's why I said you better get this right. That was my subtle way of telling both you and Matt that it's not a trick no, question. Okay. All right, three for three with one question to go. And remember, you're going to get a hint for this one. So question number four, this is a fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Blank lumberjack match. And the hint, in the motion picture South Park, Bigger, longer, and uncut, the denizens of South Park blamed this group of people for the trouble their children had been getting into. I believe it's going to be a a Canadian lumberjack match. John, you, you, this is like the road warriors on TBS. (laughs) You completely (laughs) annihilated Matt sex cells. (laughs) Getting all four questions right, and Matt could only get one right. Uh, A huge, huge victory, and the fourth in a row for John Boucher. I've been shooting uh, rhesus monkey hormones into the vein in my forehead, so that probably helps. (laughs) Well, and and clearly it's worth whatever's (laughs) going to happen to you long term (laughs) as a result of this. So congratulations to John. I also want to thank my friend Matt Sells, uh, not to pull the curtain uh, too much on this, but I actually had two other challengers lined up and both of them fell through for various reasons. And I uh, got Matt to do this at pretty much the last minute. So he didn't even have a chance to study. Ah. So uh, again, thank you to Matt for uh, yes, participating and doing his best. 
but uh, a TV victory for John Boucher, who continues to move up the cards in Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. Yeah, I hope these guys, the other two guys, don't, uh, whatever, crash their truck on the farm next month. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's really it's really funny you say that, and I'm not going to say why, oh, because wh- because one of them, I'm up. Uh, we're we're going to try and get them back doing this again next month. And so it's very funny you mentioned that, but <laughs> you, I can't tell you why. Okay. So that about wraps things up for this month. Uh, <laughs> next month is March, which as baseball fans know, means it's time for spring training. Oh, it's back. Yes. So I figured let's head down to beautiful, sunny Florida and check out Eddie Graham's championship wrestling from Florida in 1971. Nice. And while Florida is loaded up with talent during the year, there's a few interesting things to note. Uh, The biggest feud of the year, based on how I calculate them, may have been one that primarily took place on the B-shows in the smaller towns. And un-Florida-like from what we think about the territory, there are several uh, unique angles involving masks. Hmm. Now, Generally, these are wrestlers losing loser leave town matches and returning under a mask. But there's also a really interesting slash weird angle involving a masked wrestler named the Grappler, who is not someone normally associated with that gimmick. And sadly, this man's biggest claim to fame in wrestling is much more from the dark side of the ring. Ooh. Uh, speaking of dark side of the ring, uh, they announced uh, some point over the last few weeks uh, the subjects of the next season. Mm-hmm. John, uh, you of course, have been uh, consulting for yes. Dark Side of the Ring. Yes, so yes, uh, yes. if you have any uh, tidbits you can share with our listeners, I don't know what you're allowed to do. And again, don't want to get in any trouble. Yeah. But if there's anything you can tell our listeners to get them excited about these upcoming uh, season. I do think, yeah, there's there's t- 10 new episodes. And I think there's a, there's a handful on there that listeners of this show might be into. There's the Harley Race, um, which has got some great archival footage uh you know we got a harley's uh widow woman he was married to for most of the 70s during his his time as you know the man in the nwa uh sent a, a huge box to my apartment of film video photos there's some if you told 10 year old me that i have a I'd have a box of harley races stuff in my apartment, uh, I, I would have been. Why do I live in an apartment as a fifty-year-old? Um, <laughs> and I, uh, but I would, I would be amazed to, you know, it just incredible. Some gr- really good, cool archival stuff that really, I think, makes the episode really, really cool. The Chris Colt one, that was great too. I think there's a lot of stuff that you know about him that we haven't yet heard. Uh, Again, you know, getting a, a VHS tapes of Chris Colt home movies was uh, just about what you would expect. Um, <laughs> the, so that's another episode I think people, uh, fans of this show might like. The, the Black Saturday one, if, you, if you're into that, like sort of. Right. That, that's another one, too. And there are other ones like Chris Adams and uh, Terry Gordy. There's a lot of, even if there's not a lot of new information necessarily there. There's a lot of good interviews with family members and stuff. We haven't heard people we haven't heard from before. So I hope you'll find those interesting as well. Yeah. You know, so I, uh, for a while on the Indies, I managed, uh, Terry son Ray in wild side. 
Um, and of course, Ray ended up going to the WWF. Uh, Jesse and Festus, yep. he teamed yep. up with Luke Gallows. Uh, and, and Ray um, quit wrestling a while back. I believe he's in law enforcement. And uh, I was actually saying this on X earlier today. There have been a few attempts to get him to just make an appearance at local indie shows, and he has always declined. Um, hmm. uh, I did meet Miranda. Uh, in Waterloo, Iowa, a couple of years ago at the Tregos Thez weekend, I uh, introduced myself and told her I managed uh, her brother, Ray. So, you know, yeah, I, I've met a couple of uh, Terry's kids. I'm looking forward to that. I'm also, I'm really curious uh, about the John Tenta episode just because he's someone I don't know that much about other than, you know, his his wrestling career. So yeah. I'm, I, I'm really hopeful of learning more about him, uh, whether it's dark side or just, you know, things about the the person John Tenta I I really uh am hoping that that one uh is good that's yeah again probably not a not a spoiler or not 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 violating an N- NDA or anything by saying that it's it's not it's probably the least dark side of all the okay, <laughs> of all the dark sides it's and it's again it's this one the interviews with the family it's one of my favorite episodes and it's just so different than any of the other episodes and it's 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 one of my favorites from this season good so hopefully we'll all be able to learn more about those wrestlers in the coming weeks when does the first episode air march i forget march. the exact date okay. march okay. So we got about a month. So we got, yeah we got about a month uh from when we're recording this until it comes out um so uh yeah just like uh learning about all those wrestlers uh is similar to how john and i learn new things each and every month when we do our research for this podcast and each and every month we each name one of those things in our next segment which is this month i learned so john what did you learn this month i've got a, a pretty quick one this month even though it's a even though it's a two-parter and i'm, I'm kind of surprised that i didn't already know this because this is kind of stuff is the exact trivia that i love so much so this month i learned that wcw's own lee marshall was the voice of tony the tiger from 2005 until his death in 2014, and okay. that Lee Marshall replaced the wonderfully named Thurl Ravenscroft, who had voiced Tony the Tiger since 1953, even coming up with the their great catchphrase, Thurl Ravenscroft, also notable for being the vocalist on You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. Oh, yes. Yeah. Without a doubt. Okay. Uh, you know, I think I had heard the Lee Marshall thing and it sort of fell out of my brain because yep. it's because I, I have all the you know lyrics, all the Loverboy songs uh, <laughs> crammed in there. So there's just not <laughs> not much room for new info. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I had heard that, but didn't recall it till you brought it up again. So as for me, uh, I got an advanced copy of a book that's coming out in early April. Uh, it's called The Six Pack ah. by Brad, uh, Brad Baluchian. Uh, it is, um, he literally took a road trip to, uh, interview six wrestlers that, uh, competed on the Madison square garden card the night the iron Sheik defeated Hulk Hogan. Um, Brad, uh, at some point last year, Brad and I, uh, emailed back and forth. He had some questions about Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, and I guess I, I guess I helped him out enough that, uh, he decided to send me an advanced copy. Um, I usually judge books by how much I learn, uh, how much new information that I, a self-proclaimed wrestling historian no and by that measure this book is fan freaking tastic um and it's not just the things i learned it's that i learned things about anthony white not tony atlas Mm. 
Um, but the thing I learned was about the Iron Sheik. Um, uh, when Sheik first came to America, he did not speak any English at all. One of the ways that the Iron Sheik learned English while he was in the United States was by watching Sesame Street. Oh. And, you know, again, for all the things we know about Iron Sheik, all the stories, all the Twitter things and this and that, we sometimes forget that these are people, yeah. these are human beings, and that really humanized him for me. Yeah, and that makes the his the promo thing the A to the Z. That makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah, so that's that's what we've learned. That's what we've got this month. Uh, of course, if you want to uh, learn about Leora McGurk's territory in the early seventies or Heart of America or um, coming at the spring Gulf Coast, you can order my Charting the Territories Almanacs from Amazon worldwide or go to chartingattheterritories.com. Uh, the books are apparently good enough to uh, have uh, gotten me uh, an award. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, the Melby Award again uh, this summer in Waterloo, Iowa uh, as part of the Tragos Fez Hall of Fame induction weekend. Um, a lot of the things we've talked about on this episode and, and some other pictures and other photos of Sweet Daddy Siki and Bill Miller that we didn't even really get to talk about, but we'll post those on X and use the hashtag CTTFEB24. And if this, this is your first time hearing about uh, our enhancement wrestler for the month, Matt Sexells, uh, great guy. Uh, he likes to, uh, he likes to wrestle. He likes Motley Crue and he likes beer. Mm -hmm. And if any of those three, three things are up your alley, you should probably follow his ex at the Boozerweight. That's all one word. T H E B O O Z E R W E I G H T. And John, where can our, uh, where can our listeners find you on the X? Oh, find me on the X at J O N underscore B O U C H E R. Follow me for all sorts of wrestling, wrestling goodness. The charting the territories podcast comes out the second Thursday of the month, but here's something interesting. <sighs> February in 2024 has five Thursdays. <sighs> John, do you know how often that occurs on average? Um, no. Okay. Can I just say no? <laughs> yeah, you, you can always, yes, you can always say no. Okay. So cool. February normally has 28 days. Yeah. Which means every single day of the week would occur four times exactly, mm. except when there's a leap year, okay. when yeah. one day of the week happens five times okay so the only way for february to have five thursdays is has to be a leap year and then it happens one out of every seven times oh wow so that yeah, means that makes sense only one out of 28 years wow. is there five thursdays in a month and this happens to be the year not only is it an average of every 28 years it's exactly Every 28 yeah. years. The last time this happened was in uh, uh, 24, 1996. The time before that was 1968. It literally happens exactly every 28 years. Uh -huh. yeah. So going by that, John, when is the next time this podcast will have a five-week break between February and March? Nine, two, two, are we going to be alive then? <laughs> 
Are we, I, I'm not worried about whether we're going to be alive. Are we still going to be doing this fucking podcast <laughs> in 28 yeah, years? That's 20. <laughs> Let's see. I would be 80. So it's 20. Yeah, I would. Jesus Christ. I would be. I would be 80. Yeah, that's I hope we're not still, still doing this podcast the next time there are five <laughs> Thursdays in February. That's 20. So I'll be almost. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'm the same age. So we'll, yeah, I'll be uh, yeah. 70, 79. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll be we'll be doing this from Shady Springs Retirement yeah. Home in uh, suburban Pennsylvania. <laughs> and to be the first to know when new episodes are available, either now or or twenty eight years from now, <laughs> subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. It's a good thing we're going to Florida next month, John, for the podcast. I think we're going to need to scout out some <laughs> retirement villas. Del Boca Vista, baby. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you in March, March, 2052. <laughs>